This morning, when we dive in to this message, we're going to see Jesus rattle the cage of a dying church. And again, more things are revealed about how Jesus engages with his kids. More things are revealed about what Jesus is like. And more things are going to be cropping up in your life. And you go, oh my gosh, this is a letter for me. This is not just a letter for the church in Sardis. This is my letter. If Jesus was to write me a letter, it'd be this one. Are you ready to get into that sort of thing? Uh, I certainly hope you are. If you have a Bible, please take it out. If not, please raise your hand. We'll have someone bring a Bible to you. Have the whole team come down and bring you Bibles. I will give you the page number on where to turn to. Um, once you receive one of those, also take out the handout sheet that was handed to you at the door. And we're going to begin with uh, looking a little bit at the title for today and also at the fill in the blank there in front of you. But today we are in part five of our Revelation series. We're in chapter three. We're going to be starting in chapter three, verse one. Revelation is the last book in the Bible. That should make it easy to find. Jump all the way to the end, back up a little bit. And in case you had a Bible handed to you, that's page 868, 868 to take a look at if you're not familiar with scripture. Um, but open up the Bible to Revelation chapter three, verse one, kind of lay it on your lap and let's take a look at that handout. Part five of Revelation, I entitled it merely this, and you've heard it on enough medical shows. Clear, right? Yeah, you know, everyone knows what that means. It's kind of like, get, step back for a second, because I'm about to shock someone back to life. That's, that's the idea. Well, this is indeed, in my opinion, the heart of the message today, is that Jesus is looking at this church, and he's telling everyone to back off, because he's about to hit it with the paddles, and he's going to hit it hard, and jolt them back to life. Uh, this is one of two churches that receives almost no positive whatsoever in their letter. It's this whole idea of, gosh, you guys are way off. They're, they're, I'm not seeing a whole lot to be excited about, a whole lot to commend. You guys have just missed the boat. We're not, we're not even on the same page. You're not even attached to me. You're not even tied to me. When the world is going on, wake up, he says. And he hits them hard. Well, some commentators have said that even though Laodicea, in my opinion, gets the most brutal wording towards them, some commentators say this is the harshest of all seven letters to all the different churches. But always make it personal. Lord, in what way does this apply to me? In what way does this apply to our church here at Bridgeway? Is this our letter? Is this what we need to see? Is this what we need to hear? You see... We begin with this concept of being alive. So the fill in the blank in front of you, lest we miss the kind of general concept that I'm trying to get across, is this. Every powerful believer, every powerful believer must be alive and alert. Every powerful believer must be alive and alert. Somehow we bought into bogus Christian concepts. We have bought into this idea that everything's about getting saved and that's it. As long as I'm saved and I'm good to go to heaven, i got nothing else I need to do. That is garbage. That's not biblical Christianity. 
Biblical Christianity operates on the assumption that believers are active and alive in Christ and moving forward. If we cease to be that, we cease to be effective in this world. Remember, we began the study of this book with a talk about churches being lampstands, where we shine the light of Jesus Christ. If that light goes out, the lampstand is removed. It's no longer useful. We must be in a constant vigil state, a constant state to where we go, am I alive in Christ? Am I even making an impact in the world? Am I shining brightly? You see, we need to constantly be uh, checking ourselves and saying, Lord, are you pleased with where I'm at? This whole idea of, I don't know, maybe I'll go to church. I'm kind of in a phase where I don't really want to be involved. And this whole, let me just kick back for a couple years. It's no big deal. No, that's garbage too. No, we remain involved. We remain active. Why? Because the enemy is not second time off. It's not exactly like he's just kicking back and going, oh, we're off now? Oh, okay. No, we move actively forward in our faith. That's why we're here all the time. When you are here, we are on. We are examining. We're studying. We're challenging. I'm pushing you as hard as I can so that when you step away from this building and I know that you're on. I mean, in here, you're on as far as challenge and as far as learning and as far as growth and as far as reviving. But as far as job, you're on when you walk out of this building. You're on all week long. Everybody's watching you. Everybody's paying attention. Everybody around you is hurting. Everybody else is in pain. What are you doing about that? That's what Christianity is. Do you understand that if it was really only about getting saved then Jesus would just kill us all when we got saved, right? I mean, that's just, I mean, think about it practically. If really the whole point was to get us to heaven, you go, dear Lord, I hand my life over to you. Boom, just knocks you over with a truck. That's like that. I mean, you get hit by a bus right when you get saved. Why not? Because uh, otherwise you might as well just ruin it down here, right? The idea is not just to get a heaven ticket. That's not Christianity, but that's how we live. We think that, oh, I got the bases covered. I'm just going to make sure to keep up my membership. Right? Got to pay a little bit of dues. And I'm good to go. That's not it. No, this is about living every day with Christ in the constant presence that he's there. Because think about it this. Here's another way to look at it. If it's really about getting saved, what use is a candle in a well-lit room? When you walk into heaven, everybody's saved. So it's all well lit. Everybody can see very clearly. So why are you a candle there? Because it says that we're lit up. And it says when we have a light, we don't put a bushel over it. You've heard all these stories. So what's the purpose of having a candle in a well lit room? There's not. Your value, in part, is extraordinary here in a dark world. Do you get that? Do you understand how valuable you are as a believer? In a pitch black area, a candle is extremely useful. And you're walking around as this bright shining, helping people not to trip, helping people through their pain, helping people to see things differently. That's your value. You bring value everywhere you go. You hang out at the bus stop. You got value. You hang out in your cubicle. You got value. Because the darker it is around you, the more value you provide. So just understand, here in this world, before Jesus comes back, before you pass away, your value is at a maximum to the world. Are we utilizing that? 
Are we active and alive? Jesus said that if you disconnect from him, nothing you do is going to matter, at least from God's point of view. In other words, you need to remain connected to the source and then everything you do matters. See, Jesus is changing this world, but he'd love to do it through you. Are you alive and active and willing? Are you a willing participant in what God is doing? That, I believe, is the heart of what we're doing here. Let's take a look at Revelation chapter 3. I'm just going to read through the uh, letter here. It's to the church in Sardis. We've already covered four churches. Now, this last um, weekend, I had a revelation of my own. And that was this. I realized that as I was going through two churches a week with the way that I teach, which is that massive history research kind of idea, that basically people's hair was getting blown back and they were getting the CD of the service, not because they thought it was an awesome lesson, but because they have no idea what I just said. Okay, the CDs are flying out of here, right? Because everyone's like, I know he said something that was important. I just don't really remember what it was. All right. What I realized was I was pushing too much in our small amount of time. So what I've done this week and the succeeding weeks is we're going to do one church a week, one letter a week, as opposed to two. Because what I was basically doing was giving the first church of the two all this press and I was telling all this incredible stuff. And then I ran up and looked at the time. I had 10 minutes left. I was like, and there's another church. And then we left. Okay. That's not really cool. So the second church kept getting ripped off. So we're going to go ahead and slow it down a little bit and hit one church at a time. So all we're going to be doing is studying the letter to the church at Sardis and we'll move forward. So here's how it sounds to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet there are few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life but will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Heavenly father, I thank you for using your son to reveal what you want. Lord, it would be horrifying to know that we're walking through this world and not having an idea at all about what pleases you, about what irritates you. I'd much rather have it written out for me. I'd much rather know. And now, Lord, as we engage with your supernatural word, I ask that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would open up to us that we might get it, that we could wrestle with it, that we'd be changed by it. Lord, make us different people. In your name we pray. Amen. To the angel of the church in Sardis. A couple weeks ago, we studied what that means the angel of the churches, we were left with three options. Either a guardian angel, literally, the pastor or leader of the church, or the general feel of the church, or the groove, or the ethos, or the personality of the church. 
We have three options as to what those mean. You can go back and study those. But now he highlights it out. He says, write to the angel of the church in Sardis. Do you know anything about Sardis? See, I knew nothing. I mean, I, I walked into this and I'd never even heard of the city. I mean, other than outside the Bible, I was kind of like, eh, I don't know anybody. Don't know anything about this. Don't know any history. Well, it has a rather fascinating history. It still exists, although it's now just a bunch of huts. There's a really tiny place called Sart. Nowadays, in modern day Turkey, remember these seven churches are all in the Turkey region or the what back then was called the Roman province of Asia, even though it was a much smaller territory. These churches kind of form a kind of a circle, a little bit messed up looking circle, but kind of a circular route. We are now we came in at the harbor of Ephesus. We've kind of gone around through four churches. We now head down from the last church we were at Thyatira. We now go 50 miles southeast. We head down and we arrive into this church of Sardis or the city of Sardis. Now, Sardis had two cities to it. As a matter of fact, one commentator said the way that Sardis is even written is plural. So it means it, it has this kind of idea of having two cities. Basically, there was a massive uprising of a rock, um, almost like a huge plateau that just rises out 1500 feet from the valley floor. Way up on top was a city. Now, in the ancient world, that was the only city that existed. It was really hard to get up there. There was one rough area where you could climb up and they could kind of get donkeys and stuff to get everybody up there and get some of their supplies up there. It had its own spring that flew through the middle, flowed through the middle of the city so it could keep sustained. But it was hard to get up there. Once you get up there, there was only one way into the city, one major gate. They could shut that gate and they're impenetrable. But over time, as the city grew, it outgrew its area. You can't expand on a mountaintop because you run into air, really, is what happens. So you can't exactly go, you live over there. That doesn't work. So they began to do a second city down at the base and cover around the bottom of it. Well, way back about 700 years before John's time was their heyday. They didn't have the one around the bottom. They were just a city on top. And they were known for their wealth. They were a rich, arrogant, ignorant city. They had a king by the name of Croesus. Croesus was legendary for how wealthy he was. There was actually a proverb known for being as rich as Croesus. So everybody knew that this guy was loaded. It was almost like, you know how we all know King Midas, this idea of the Midas touch, and he's known about gold and this kind of thing. Same exact idea. This guy was just flat out wealthy. Well, Croesus was up on top and he noticed stuff going on down below and he saw a new empire moving through. This empire was called the Persian Empire. We all remember this. We've been studying for a number of weeks when we were back in Daniel. We knew that the Medo-Persian Empire was one of the major empires. Well, as they were expanding through, he decided he wanted to go attack them. Now, that's just stupid. You don't just go down and attack a massive empire but he figured you know what the worst thing can happen is that i can go attack him see how i do if not i'll just run back home because i live in a stronghold so he merges down and the leader at that time was a man by the name of cyrus the great cyrus the great is hanging out down below across the river so these sardians or however you want to call them right sardines right these uh folks from sardis they all get this big army. Ah, they all run down, cross the river and go attack. Well, they get beat. 
Okay, they just get beat down. So they go, ah, and they all run back home, right? So they run back home and they go, oh, good, we're going to lock our doors. But now they've irritated the Persian kingdom. That was dumb. So the Persian kingdom all marches and sets up a siege for 14 days around the bottom of their mountain. And they're like, we'll kill you. Well, he goes, you can't get me, right, from the top. Now, they're sitting there. After 14 days, King Cyrus says, I will give a huge reward for anybody that can find a way to get up there. Well, now everybody's getting creative, okay? Because now they're like, hey, I get a lot of cash for this, so i got to be thinking, all right? So one soldier's down below. He looks up, and he sees another soldier hanging up up there. Well, the soldier's helmet falls off, okay? Why? I don't know. But the helmet starts going boing, 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 and it starts falling down the hill. Well, when it falls down, it's falling through all these crevices and bouncing around. Well, it lands down at the bottom. And he's like, hey, that went from up there down here i wonder if i could go from here up there he starts realizing this is not built on a mountain of rock it's built on a mountain of solid mud unfortunately when the uh, when the earth moves and shifts it creates craters and fissures and cracks so over time it had created these large crevices all the way up the mountain the soldier goes give me a team King Cyrus gives him a team. He says, you guys, in the middle of the night, you ready to go? Let's go. They climbed up the cracks, went all the way up to the top. Guess what they found when they got up there? No guards. Why? Nobody can get up here. Really? They got up there, opened the gates, stormed the city, took them over just like that. They weren't paying attention. They were absolutely arrogant that no one could ever do anything. We're the best. We're the biggest. We're the greatest. Taken over just like that. The Persian kingdom runs the whole thing. They ran it for a while, then eventually a guy by the name of Alexander the Great ended up taking over the kingdom, and so they became a Greek city. Well, when Alexander died, they had a huge turf war. Everybody wanted the stuff. They wanted the city of Sardis. So two of his leaders went head-to-head, Archaeus versus Antiochus. They go head-to-head, I'm going to storm your city. No, I'm going to do it. He storms the city, sieges it. Antiochus sieges Archaeus for one year to try to get him nailed down. And history repeats itself exactly. Can anybody get up there? One soldier goes, I sure can. Grabs a team, climbs up the cracks, finds no guards, takes over the city. Two times in their history, the exact same thing happened because they're not paying attention. Isn't it funny that now Jesus' warning to the church is the exact same? Wake up. You're not paying attention. You don't get it. The enemy is seeking all the way around your city, looking for an opening, constantly looking for cracks, fissures, something to get a foothold. He will find his way into your life. You better be vigilant and wake up and connect to me because I don't even know what you're doing. So he starts this incredible, powerful letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. Write this. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God. And what? And the seven stars. We know the seven stars stand for the seven angels of the churches. We've already discussed that. But what are the seven spirits of God? You've got three options. Now, I talked about this originally uh, at the beginning of the series. And I told you that there was three options. Here are your three options. Either number one, it's the Holy Spirit. 
Um, if you look, if you're reading an NIV study Bible, you'll notice there's a little footnote. There's a little number or letter next to it. And you go down and it says, or sevenfold spirit, meaning the language is open enough to either be seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit. Now, seven, we know, is a number of completion. So a lot of people go, oh, it's the Holy Spirit. Right on. It's the spirit in its completion. You know what? That's a completely legitimate view. You can hang on to that view. I personally wrestle with that view. I would love it to be the Holy Spirit, but I don't, I don't totally agree with that. But it's solid. Brilliant people believe that. Okay? The second view is that it's seven spirits, seven heavenly beings that minister before God. And you go, well, why would they do that? I don't know, because there's a lot of weird heavenly creatures that minister before God. You remember the seraphim and the cherubim and all those guys? They're all hovering about, so what's seven more spirits before God? That's fine. Or the third option is it means the sevenfold wisdom of God that goes out through all the earth and knows everything. And you go, where'd you come up with that one? Well, because Zechariah in the Old Testament, he calls it the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth. So there's support for all three views. Which is it? I don't know. You say, Lance, why don't you believe it's the Holy Spirit? Because of this verse right here. He'll say this a couple different times, but this verse causes me trouble. Why? Because it says these are the words of him who's him. Jesus Christ, right? We know it's Jesus Christ because this is an image of Jesus Christ that we saw at the beginning of the book. Jesus Christ is doing what to the Holy Spirit? He has hold of him. It's like he's grasping him, holding on to him. And you go, that's weird. It implies authority over. And I was like, well, that's weird. I don't like that. Now, are there verses where Jesus said last night, a gentleman came up to me afterwards and goes, hold on a second, right here. And he pulls out, I love the fact that I'm in a Bible teaching church because, man, I got everybody going, no, it's awesome. They come back up to me and they will have an argument ready. And I just think that's great. That's fantastic. You can always challenge me. I got no problem with that. But he came up and he says, right here, Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples, said, I need to depart so the Holy Spirit will come and I will send him. And you're like, oh, okay, right there. Jesus is sending the Holy Spirit. He's casting him forward. So you can buy that view. I'm just saying I think it's weird that he's holding on to with the idea of authority over or protection over. I'm like, the Holy Spirit doesn't need that. They're all operating together and independent. So anyway, it's just not my particular view. All right. But you can certainly hold that. But what we need to understand is that Jesus holds the power and authority of the churches in his hand. He's saying, listen, nothing is happening outside of my control. I have access. I have control over what's going on. So he writes a letter to them. He said this. He said, I know that word oida in Greek. I know fully your deeds. That's their works, their ministry, the stuff they do. He said, I know exactly everything you're doing. So was this church in danger because they weren't doing anything? Were they lazy? Were they idle? No. One of the only things he mentions is the stuff they're doing. He's like, you're doing a lot of stuff. I mean, you guys are active. As far as anyone looking at your church, you guys are doing plenty of stuff. I know your deeds. But there's a problem. Next phrase, which I think is the most impactful phrase in the whole letter. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're what? dead everyone thinks you're it everyone thinks you're the big dog everyone thinks that you're awesome you know what you're done i got no value in you that is so striking 
you have the reputation of being alive. Two choices on that. Either they're literally a dead church and everyone's remembering when they were a big deal or they are still currently thriving and successful in the world's eyes. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that one. All I know is Jesus doesn't count it. So here's what we must take into our hearts about this passage. Just because you're successful on the outside, just because your ministry is doing excellent, does not mean it's pleasing to God. Everybody asks me this all the time. Oh, the church has always been growing. It's had growth for 11 and a half years. It's exciting. Aren't you glad God's using your ministry? And, and you must be so proud that God's pleased with you. And I said, hold on a second. What would you just say? Oh, just because the church is growing and the ministry is active, somehow that means that God is pleased with me? No, 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 no. That is not a final indicator. There are huge, massive, successful churches in this world that I think are garbage. And I don't think they're pleasing to God whatsoever. I never assume that. Growth does not mean health. Growth does not mean God is pleased. So I never look at that as an indicator. I got to look at other stuff as an indicator. But do you understand? They had a reputation. Everyone else thought they were great. All the other churches, all the other people, a lot of other churches were probably thinking, man, I wish I was like Sardis. I wish I was like Sardis. They always have this active ministry and they're awesome and they can do this and they can do that. Everybody wants to be like them. Jesus said, I don't like them at all. They do nothing for me. That's powerful. Do you understand? Activity just doesn't cut it. Just because you're doing tons of stuff for God does not mean he's pleased. So he describes it full. He said this, wake up. He said, let me give you my solution. Wake up. That means you can do something about it. Wake up and be watchful is what the word means. He said, get your head back in the game. You're completely disconnected. You're doing your own thing. You're running forward on all this ministry and activity. You're not even checking in with me. You don't care what I think. You don't care whether or not we're doing something that advances the kingdom of God. You're popular. You're doing fantastic. Keep going. No, stop what you're doing and wake up. Wake up, he says. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. He said, you guys are this close to me just shutting up shop. There is no way I need to continue with you. You are so close to not even being useful to me whatsoever. Strengthen what is about to die. We still have hope. There's still a possibility that if I shock you, I can bring you back. We can do this. Come on, guys. Get in there with me. Let's go. Let's get alive. Let's get vibrant. Let's get active. For I have found your deeds, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. That's their problem. Unfortunately, most of us would read that and go, well, they didn't do enough. No, that's not what it means. Oh, I didn't do enough for God. I should do more. I need to put in more days. I need to do more stuff. Not more, just right. You see, their deeds weren't complete. Because they weren't initiated by God. They weren't doing the right things. Do you understand one day of ministry doing the right thing is better than six other days of doing bogus ministry? The, the, the goal is not to work harder. The goal is not to do more stuff. It's to do the right things. Sometimes Jesus, through the power of his spirit, can accomplish more in one hour than you could do all week long. Do you understand? We just have to be tracking with the right things. 
Your deeds have not been found complete in the sight of my God. In other words, you're not getting credit for it, kids. I know you're doing a lot. Doesn't count. So let's make it personal. What in your life is like that? What is Jesus looking at and going, man, yeah, everybody else thinks your ministry is successful. I'm not counting it. I don't even know what you're doing. You haven't been talking to me at all. You throw me a bone here and there. You probably refer to me an awful lot. I'm not in it. You know that. You've never slowed down to even check. You don't care. As long as everybody else thinks you're awesome, you're fine, right? No, stop doing that. Wake up. Strengthen what is about to die. He said, remember, therefore. Same thing he said to Ephesus. Remember, get your head back. Remember, what are we doing again? Get back to the basics. Why did I put you here? Why are you a church? Why are you a believer? Why are you in the community you're in? Remember, get back to the essence of what? Next phrase. Remember what you have received and heard. What did they receive and hear? The gospel. What's the gospel about? What are we doing? Are we loving God more? Are we loving people more? Do we have the very core of Christianity advancing? If not, then stop doing what you're doing. Because it's just a mess. Obey it. Don't just think about it. Do different stuff. Change. You guys, this one's really hard in Christian subculture. Because I've only seen one church in, in, in my years in ministry. I've only seen one church dramatically change the focus of their whole church. I've only seen it occur once. And they lost 60% of their congregation. Because they changed directions. They went from this type of church to this type of church. Everybody bailed out. It's really, really hard that when everybody ex- wants your ministry to do a certain program and you stop doing that program, oh, you will get destroyed. Nobody likes you messing with their programs. And like I said, only one church has ever done it. and It was devastating to them. They almost just shut up shop. But they felt a call from the Lord to go a different direction. They were trying to be sensitive to that. Well, didn't work out so well, but eventually they made it through. They're still struggling to this day. But understand, nobody likes the change. Nobody likes the, we're not doing that anymore, we're doing this over here. But we have to be fluid with what the Lord says. We have to be able to respond to the prompting of the Holy Spirit when he starts going, that program, I know it's successful. Everyone in the whole town loves that program. I'm not in it. Stop doing it. Take it up all your resources for no reason. We're not advancing the kingdom of God. Shut it down. Wow, that's tough. You guys as leaders. Obey it and repent. Godly sorrow. Realize you've really messed up here. Engage with the how much you're hurting the Lord. Let the sorrow come in. Turn it. 180 degrees. Let's do something different. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I come to you. Does anybody find it odd that Jesus keeps being linked to a thief? That totally bugs me, right? Now, I don't know if it's because he hung out with him on the cross, and he's like, I'm like a thief, right? You know, And he's like, hey, hey, I didn't ask to be here. Uh, I don't, the deal is, is there's a word for thief and there's a word for robber. It's not the bad guy. It's the idea of sneakiness. That's, that's really the idea. It's the suddenness, you never knew I was coming kind of idea. Um, he says, I'm coming to you. If you don't wake up. Now, what's he going to do when he shows up? 
We don't know. It's all a guess, right? Does it mean judgment? I'm going to come in and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Is that what he means? Or does it mean second coming of Christ? When I show up again, you aren't going to be ready. You're going to be caught off guard. Does it mean blessings? When I come, I'm going to remove all blessings from you and you never even saw it coming. I'm going to take my spirit right out of your church. What does it mean? All I know is it's a bad thing. I don't want it to happen. Whatever it is, I know that. He said, yet you have a few good people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Three interesting things about that phrase. Number one, in a dead church, a lot of times there's a few alive people. Number two, he doesn't tell them to leave the church and go somewhere else. He tells them to lead the change. Isn't that interesting? We are so apt to just bail. But do not bail out of a church until you notify leadership and let them know what's up. Because it may be God's way of you leading about a change. Try to lead change. I understand you can try and it doesn't work. Oh, what am I? I'm one person. I can't lead change. I think God's probably going to grade on the idea of effort. Which is kind of like, did you try? Did you even talk to anybody? Because we immediately hop away. Well, now, if you are healthy, you just removed one more healthy person from that church. That's not effective. If we take out all the healthy people, then, of course, we're not going to have anybody healthy. First, try to affect change. If it's shut down over a period of time, notify leadership as so, then move on. Do you understand? The same thing here. He says, even though this is a dead church, there are some alive folks in there. They have not soiled their clothes. What does that mean? Well, in the ancient world, whether it was pagan or Jewish, you could not go to worship your God in soiled clothes because it was an outward example of saying you need to come to God with cleansing on the inside. Well, he said, these folks haven't done it wrong. They're still connected to me. They have not soiled their clothes and they will walk with me dressed in white. White is purity. And in the Roman world, when there was a mighty victory, the whole city would put on white clothes to announce the victory. So he said, they will walk with me victorious and they will walk with me dressed in white, purified by me. And when you get to walk with Jesus, what does that mean? Isn't that kind of a cool picture? It means where I go, you go. What I do, you do. Almost like a shepherd and a sheep or a rabbi and a disciple. This idea that as I'm walking, you're experiencing everything with me. All my blessings are overflowing onto you. He said, if you engage with me, you get to walk with me. He said... For they are worthy. Are they worthy because they did good stuff? No. They're worthy because the Lamb's blood cleansed them. We are not worthy and holy because we did all the right things. Nobody does all the right things. We are worthy because Jesus cleaned us up. That's why we're worthy. They are worthy. He said, he who overcomes. Now he's speaking to everybody else. To he who overcomes, who endures, who sticks in there, who makes it. I will he's to he who overcomes will like them be dressed in white, meaning I will purify them and I will never blot out his name from the book of life. That's a freaky verse. Anybody bothered by that verse? That's a weird verse. You got a couple of ideas on what it means because the Bible talks a lot about the book of life. It talks a lot about books. It'll say, and then Jesus opened up the books and he took the Lamb's book of life. So clearly there's more than just the Lamb's book of life. But here it talks about the book of life. It's referred to 15 times in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's only in Revelation. It seems to keep talking about it in Revelation. Well, all I know is that it can mean 
You lose your salvation. It's a Christian. He's talking to Christians and he's like, I will blot your name out. You, your name is written down in the Lamb's book of life as being saved. And you know what? You're done. Is that what it means? Another one, or it could mean this, there's a book of life, meaning everyone that's living, everyone that God has created, there's this huge book of life written, and when someone dies, or uh, I'm just going to mark their name off, they're no longer living. Is that what it means? There's some some evidence for that. Is that what it means? Because in the old day, in the ancient world, the king had a list of all his citizens, and whenever they would die, he'd blot their name out. Or if they committed a crime against the state, he'd blot their name out. As if you're dead to me, is the idea. Or what does it mean? Does it mean merely that they physically die? Does it merely mean that they spiritually die? Does it merely mean they're cut off from favor and blessing for now? Is that what it means? There's a big evidence for that in the Bible. Then he marks off and goes, no more blessings for you. You're out of line. Till you come home and I clean you up, no more blessings for you. You're done. Wipe out. The only thing that shakes my core is uh, it says later in Revelation, in verse 20 and 21, anyone whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life will be cast in the lake of fire. So whatever you want to make it, it's important. All I know, because I don't know what this all means, all I know is I want my name in that book. All I know is that my name better be written there, right? You can go, it's been written there before the foundation of the world. That's fine. Cool, as long as it's there. I'm not going to argue predestination with you. All I'm going to say is, I want that in there. And he just said, you know what? Whatever it means, whether it's just a scare tactic or whatever it is, he said, I will not blot out their name. So let me leave you with an encouragement on that, though. Do you understand that the Bible goes out of its way to let you know that no one can snatch you from God's hand? Everybody clear on that one? There's a whole passage where Jesus goes, when I have hold of you, no one can take you out of my hand. They can try. Neither demons, angels, nobody can take you out of my hand. This is my hand. You got it? I'm in control. Nobody snatches you away. So understand this. No enemy is going to run in and rip you off. That is not going to happen. I don't care who Satan is or how big of a deal he is. He may be bigger than me, but he's not bigger than Jesus. Amen? Amen. He finishes with this. But I will acknowledge his name before my father and his angels. Jesus said this before in the Gospels. He said, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my father. He said, let's do a straight up covenant. You share me, I share you. That's a big challenge because for a lot of us, we're those undercover Christians. I don't want anyone to know. It's my own private business. No one should ever know I'm a believer. Then you're a pretty lousy lampstand. Yeah, because you're supposed to give off light. If no one knows, you got a little bucket over your head. That's not effective. Now, I'm not saying to be the irritating person at work that's constantly going, Jesus, it's a good day. Okay. Nobody likes that person. Okay. I get that. Don't pop up, you know, little prairie dogging in your cubicle, look around and there's somebody to minister to Ah, and run over there. Okay. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying be natural, be a believer and share what's going on in your life. I'm saying be a real Christian. That's all I'm saying. If we're not doing that, wow, what a waste. Because you are gifted and you're needed in this world. we got to do that stuff. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit, that's definitely a reference to the Holy Spirit, says to the churches. So what would you get out of that? Is that your letter? That letter of, wake up! What are we doing? Come on! 
Really? This is your Christianity? This is it? You're doing a bunch of activity that has nothing to do with me? No, that's garbage. Wake up. Get with it. Let's do this stuff. Let's get alive. Let's get active. Do I need to shut you down? Oh, is that, is that the letter for our church, for Bridgeway? We got this reputation. We're in the community. We're the Bible teaching church. And this is exciting. And we're growing in the new building and all this stuff. And the whole time Jesus goes, I don't like it at all. This is ridiculous. I don't even care about Bridgeway. You're not on my map. You're not even tied to me. You don't even check in with me. You're just doing a bunch of activity. That's not useful. Do you understand? I'm always nervous about that. I'm always trying to check back with the Lord and go, God, are we doing what you want? Are we where you want us to be? Are we humble before you? Are we doing the things that you've called out in scripture? Are you doing that in your life? Are you constantly checking in? Are you always making sure that you're alive with the Lord? And if you're not alive, what are you doing to get there? You don't just whine about it. You engage. You remember. You understand. Jesus has an awful lot of grace, an awful lot of forgiveness. Let's jump right back in the game. We can do this. Wake up. We can do this. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, for not only an encouragement, but, Lord, a challenge where you just got in our face and let us know exactly what is okay and what is not. That, Lord, as a good father, you discipline your children, and sometimes we need a little, uh, little touch to get moving. We need a little bit of uh, motivation to get back into the game and not allow Satan to take away our joy, Satan to take away our effectiveness, but Lord, that we would be able to re-engage with you and come alive. Father, we just pray that we would be honoring to you and pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.